hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites, the podcast where I talk with all kinds of people from in and around Reno. My name is Connor McQuibby. I'm your host as always. Today is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2023. And today's episode is all about sex and dating and relationships. My guest on today's podcast is Stephen Ng. He's a local marriage and family therapist. We had a great conversation about dating, about the early stages of relationships, about transitioning into longer-term relationships, about red flags and things to look out for when you're meeting new people, intentional interviewing, learning as much as we can about our potential partners very early on in our relationships. Tons of really interesting stuff, and it was great to be able to do an episode that has a little bit more of a broad kind of advice for various people. It's not really a Reno episode as much as it is a people episode. Relationships, dating, all sorts of interesting stuff. So thank you very much, Stephen, for being my guest on the show this week. If you have any suggestions for guests on the show, please let me know. You can shoot me an email anytime, Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com, or send me a message on Instagram, also a really great way to get a hold of me. Without any further ado, this week's guest, Stephen Ng. Stephen Ng, welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So this episode is going to air on Valentine's Day, listeners. It's Valentine's Day. So no pressure. Right? And you are a marriage and family therapist. I have not done any episodes about sex and dating and relationships, and I follow you on Instagram, and you post a lot of stuff that's very interesting about the way that we deal with sex and relationships. And I generally like to have conversations that are less of the, you know, the standard and people who have interesting opinions and different ways of thinking of things. Can you just start by telling me a little bit about what type of practice you do? So it's marriage and family therapy and kind of what was your interest in therapy and relationships and how did you get into the work that you're doing? Well, my, my own interest started really in the earliest years of my childhood. I thought for a long time in elementary school, I grew up to become a lawyer because I had a dad who was a career criminal and I just was exposed to a lot of lawyering and I thought it was fascinating, much more profitable than the criminal side. But the actual problems that came up in my family really made me curious about figuring out how do people have normal families and what do you have to do to get there? In my family, besides the criminal element, there was also uh, substance abuse and just a fair amount of drama and unpredictability. And figuring that out was sort of a, a lifelong dream and actually having a normal family was, was part of that dream. So eventually, when I, after I got done with the various mistakes that some of us make in starting a career, I finally figured out that I should do what I'm kind of talented at and maybe investigate how to help people. And it was after, actually, I, I went to Al-Anon for about a year and a half and got a lot of help, by the way, a public service announcement that's f free and uh, worth every penny of it. I uh, got everything that I came for and more. It was after that that I decided that I think I should become a therapist. And so it was in my 30s that I finally became a therapist. And I think also because of my father and the lack of his presence in my life, I think I always wanted to work around men. And so for years, I'd been a carpenter uh, working in a real masculine world. But then after getting my degree and my licensure as a marriage and family therapist, I decided to, that I wanted to focus on a career that would uh, help men, because I saw men as the more damaged part of our society. And it was a real pleasure and a real honor to start working with men, and I've been doing it now for over 30 years. So that's kind of how I got yeah. into all this. We'll talk a little bit later about some of the work you do with sex crimes. I know that you are the therapist for people who are convicted or charged with sex crimes, things to that effect. But I want to start off our episode for Valentine's Day with something perhaps a little bit lighter than the sex crime talk. Uh, we'll save that for the end of the episode. You write a, a blog for Psychology Today that's called Sexual Futurist. So can you tell me what, it, what a sexual futurist is, what that title means, and kind of what the approach of that blog is? Well, long before I came up with that name, uh, I did some research on the term, and uh, nobody listening to this will be surprised that if you look up sexual futurists, besides me, which I think probably I'll come up a lot now, but 
back in the day, it was all about robot sex and sex in the future under incredibly kinky conditions. And I don't judge, but it really wasn't relevant to the vast majority of us. For me, being a sexual futurist, my goal was to speak to a future that I think we deserve as human beings, a future that's characterized by the best of us, our propensity for altruism, for connectedness. And it seemed to me that our failure rate in relationships was way too high for not only a social species, but the more I read Edward O. Wilson, uh, who died about a year and a half ago, where are you social species? We're like at the top with only a few other species who are able to build a society that really benefits all of us. So I think that for me, that sexual futurist idea also speaks to some enlightenment thinking as opposed to the revelations of religion. I think enlightenment thinking is based on knowledge and reasoning. And that leads to some very different conclusions about sexuality and how we might partner up with significant others. So that's what it means to me. Gotcha. And I know that another thing that you talk about is managing sexuality intelligently. You talk about the science of love and the magical thinking of love and relationships. Can you talk a little bit about those two different ways of thinking about love, the science of love versus the magical thinking, and why that is a kind of focus of the way that you talk about relationship and sexuality? Uh, I can, and I can do it for days. I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure how to make it really brief, except that that phrase, the intelligent management of sexuality or managing sexuality intelligently, that's not a phrase that anybody uses other than myself and my clients. And yet the alternative uh, really sounds unworkable. <laughs> right, yeah. What is, what is unintelligently <laughs> managing sexuality? Well, the problem is that most people do go with that magical thinking that is utterly untethered to rational thinking, and they go only with the emotions. And, and I think we need both. I mean, to be fully human, we need not only our emotions and feelings, but our, our intellect and, and clarity of thought. So all the old songs that say, all we need is love, it's a wonderful sentiment, and it sure sounds good with the right beat, but it isn't really true because then you'd be saying something like, well, if she and I love one another, then we should be together forever. But I don't know about you, but I started falling in love sometime in elementary school, and I'm relieved that I'm not with any of those uh, former partners. And so we mature, we age, we grow. And I'd hate to think that we'd be making a lifelong decision as a kid in elementary school or as a teenager or even uh, necessarily as a young adult. I think that we benefit from life experience and from being challenged in our thinking. So yeah, in intelligent management of sexuality is something where we open our minds to the possibility that at any given time we could be wrong. Because I think all of us have had the experience of falling in love with someone who we were sure was the one, only to find out a short time later that uh, we had been grievous in our erroneous thinking and that uh, we were just lucky to have escaped with our skins. After you've done that a few times, you realize well, I realized that I, I could be wrong. And so what would help me to have a greater probability of being right? Not a guarantee, because we're not talking about deductive logic, but probability. And what would raise the odds of success for any of us? And I think... I think there are a lot of things we could do to intelligently raise the odds of our success. Yeah. Uh, do you think those things are compatible with the ideas of romance and uh, the butterflies and, and, the, and the traditional idea of falling in love? They have to be because it takes both of those things for us to be fully human. So yes, in a typical romance, I look across a crowded room, uh, to quote the song, and my eyes see her, and she's amazing and beautiful and wonderful, and I know she's incredibly intelligent. I can tell by the way she's dressed and, and just standing. And really, do, if I don't have that, do I even bother? I mean, if, if there isn't some level of animal attraction, what they used to call animal magnetism 100 years ago, mm. if I don't have that, why would I go forward to even getting to know someone? But if I do go forward to getting to know them, I really have to be open to the evidence 
unfolding in front of me. And sometimes there's evidence of profound deal breakers, red flags, whatever mm. you want to call them, that would say, yeah, boy, was I wrong. Got it. One of the things you talk about also is the intentional interview. And I know that when you're dating someone new, you're learning about them. Is this a process when you're first dating someone? Or is this when you are starting to get more into a potential serious relationship with someone? And and what does it look like? And what is the, the goal of having more intentional conversations? Well, sometimes I risk alienating people just walking into a room. But um, here I get to share some ideas that will probably offend some people. Um, I think... I'm probably going to alienate the the young at heart, especially. But I think online dating is insane and insanely unproductive Uh. and actually very um, inefficient. Because if I can actually develop a life worth living, which is essential prior to having a life worth sharing, if I'm going to have a life worth living, I actually have to have friends and a social life. As I go to social events and meet people, I get to get to know them. And for us humans, and that includes me, and I assume most of the resident earthlings listening, that we really enjoy getting to know people. We enjoy getting to know them, even if they're terrible people. I mean, it's um, kind of entertaining. Yeah, I mean, I I host a podcast, so I'm all about meeting people (laughs) of all different types. So yeah, fully understand that. Right. And sometimes the villain is the most interesting person at any social gathering. So if we're at a social gathering, I would challenge anybody with uh, even a, a modicum of social skills to go up and have a conversation in five minutes, five minutes or less to know, is the person interested in me or not? Does she get my sense of humor? Does she even have a sense of humor? How did she find out about this party? Who invited her? What does she do for a living? And so there's so many things that I find out in five minutes that really clear uh, the way for decision making Mm. to go forward and getting to know her even better, perhaps at another time, or to stick around instead of uh, looking for the cheese tray and kind of beating a quick retreat. So I think compared to swiping left or swiping right after reading a little thumbnail sketch written by the prospect in the attempt to appear in the most positive light, we don't know really anything about someone from reading those thumbnail sketches, but we can know a lot. And we've evolved to be very efficient at figuring out people in a very quick way. So the intentional interview starts with that that interview that tells me, is she friendly or not? Is she open to meeting me or not? If the answer to those things is yes, then of course I, can, I get to go forward. We're going forward in an intentional interview, I've been accused of turning dating into like this cold, calculated <laughs> sort of uh, assessment, running algorithms on people you meet. But Algorithm is a fancy word for what we all do all the time as we get to know someone. And so if um, neo-Nazis are your thing, then listening for telltale signs of um, national socialism is a really good thing. But if it's not, then you, you hear the little stirrings of that sort of thinking and you, again, exit stage left So for me, there are some key components that are kind of, I know this is, again, politically incorrect, but there's some historical research that validates the idea of a Chinese water torture. And we all know the metaphor anyway, even if it's not a real thing, where the drop of water that is harmless and inconsequential, but it starts really bothering us over a prolonged period of time. And so those kinds of things that we learn from relationship failures really help us. So for example, if you if you can rate yourselves on a scale of one to 10 regarding neatness in the home, some of us are a five, which would be average. Some of us are a relative eight, which would be kind of high. And some are a shameful one or two. But cleanliness is not really next to godliness, no matter what our mothers told us. And there's really nothing morally superior about being a one compared to an eight or vice versa. And yet, we all have a comfort zone. Mm -hmm. 
And for some of us, a five is fine. I can deal with it. But I've met tens, and tens will kill you if they try to live with you, and you're an eight. They will just go insane with that. So I think we need to figure out a little bit about ourselves. And to that end, again, this doesn't sound very romantic. I think it's important for everyone to date at least 30 people, which may sound like an intimidating mm. number, but some of those 30 are going to be one-time wonders where we just go out once and say, never again. <laughs> and others might last three to six months or even longer. But I think the more people we date, the more we begin to understand the variety of the human experience and how diverse our population really is. Because I know for me, I have been amazed in both directions, positively and negatively, to meet some women who are far more wonderful than I ever knew women to be, and some who were quite the opposite. So I think once you get a little experience under your belt as someone who's interested in being in a relationship, you begin to see, oh, okay, these are the kinds of questions I need to ask. One that I did my TED Talk on was the magic sex number, and that would be kind of the along the same lines as neatness and tidiness, because we all have a different appetite for sexual pleasure. And for some of us, it's once a day or far more, because I've talked to people with a, for a higher number. Mm -hmm. And for some people, it's once a month or even far less. I've talked to people who prefer sex once a year if they like it at all. So finding someone who's roughly compatible is pretty important if you're planning on getting all of your sexual needs mm -hmm. met in a traditionally monogamous relationship. And most people who celebrate Valentine's Day are thinking along those lines. Right. So uh, the part about dating there in terms of the intentional interview is at some point in the date, if we really like each other and we're getting to know each other, it's only reasonable to talk about the future and perhaps our having a future together and, oh, what would that look like? And then we talk about the picket fence and the kids and dogs and lifestyle and, oh, yeah, by the way, how often do you think we would have sex? <laughs> <laughs> or how often would you like to have sex? If you haven't learned this already by asking about people's romantic history, which is another very important variable to, to ask about, mm -hmm. most of us are pretty shy when it comes to talking about sexuality at all. People of all ages, all religions, all ethnic and educational backgrounds seem to be very shy about this. But challenging someone to pick a number and then um, writing it down on a cocktail napkin or restaurant napkin and then uh, turning our napkins over oh. at the same time <laughs> in terms of a number per week or per month. And um, I think it's, it's very telling and... So then another problem comes up because a lot of people with a disparity in numbers will mm -hmm. want to say, but I could change, except that really none of us really want to change mm -hmm. it no more than we want to change the number of calories we eat in a day or the number of hours we sleep. We don't really want to change. And that speaks to a separate problem, which is how we all try so hard to earn love by putting the best foot forward and trying to get the person to like us, which is pretty much a fool's errand, right? Because that would mean for me to be successful in a lifelong relationship, I'd have to keep that up for the rest of my days. And that isn't going to work. So I think we might as well start as we intend to finish, which is simply mm. by being ourselves. Got it. Got it. Uh, where do you think we learn this shyness about talking about sex and this discomfort with these kind of conversations? Because like you said, a lot of people probably would be uncomfortable on the first date having that conversation or in, you know, in early stages of dating, maybe. Why do you think that is? And what can we do about that? How do you normalize conversations about sex so that we can actually have them and learn from them? It's apparently in the ether that we breathe because even marriage and family therapists are extremely uncomfortable with this subject. And mm -hmm. I say that based on recent trainings I've attended on how to engage in proper self-care. Two separate trainings, which were really well-documented and well-researched, and they entertained a variety of theories, and they shared those theories with uh, hundreds of therapists. And 
at the end of it all, although we can talk comfortably about our intellectual need for self-nurturing, our physical needs, our emotional needs, our spiritual needs, and even our social needs, in both of the trainings I attended, the idea of sexual self-care never came up. And that's with marriage and family therapists. And I haven't met too many people who are interested in marriage who didn't think they would eventually have sex. And I haven't known of too many families that existed without someone having sex with someone. So apparently it's just universal. I think uh, why it hasn't changed in the last many years, frankly, uh, is because of religion. I think Although religion has given way to things like physics and astronomy and biology and chemistry, it has not really given up the notion that human relationships and human sexuality in particular are still within its provenance. And so sexuality is really taught in our society in terms of rules. And when we do try to talk about it, all hell breaks loose, so to speak. When um, teachers and well-intentioned educators try to promote sex education in the schools, we're left with this very pared-down, nearly inhuman analysis of our species as if we were talking about an animal. So it's all about anatomy and physiology, but never about human sexuality in the context of human relationships. And that's really too bad. That, that kind of makes it even more alienating and harder to defend because we don't talk about mutual attractions. We don't talk about making commitments over time. We don't talk about the ill-advised one-night stands. And all the women out there, of course, are thinking, and what about consent? We have such a high failure rate with this most intimate part of who we are And it isn't just people who commit sexual criminality, it's people who engage in sexual harassment, whether it's in the job site or not, or people who are really well-meaning and they always intended to be faithful in their marriages, but they get to a point, a stressor in their relationship or in their timeline, where having an affair really seems like the right thing to do. And for some, it very well may be. And even our rules and laws about divorce, it's almost like, especially during Valentine's Day season, right? It's talking about divorce is ill-advised, but it is a part of our sexuality, just as certainly as mate selection is a part of our sexuality. Divorce, though, even talking about it as a possibility, like if it doesn't work out, if the two of us made a rather spectacular error in judgment we can get a divorce. I have had more threatening letters on that topic than any other uh, in all my writing. So I know that it's a, a really touchy subject for people, but I only talk about intentional interviews, divorce, and subjects like this because I really believe in marriage and I believe in love. And I think that the that marriage and love bring out the best in us, the best that we have to offer in life. And I've been in a horrible marriage, and now I'm in a great marriage. So I know marriage can be hell on earth, and it can be heaven on earth. You know, it's easier, really, to go out and get married than it is to go out and get a driver's license and buy a car. We don't require any knowledge, experience, or training to marry someone or to get them pregnant and start a family. But we sure do with virtually everything else in our society. And it's kind of crazy that we do it that way. But it's, it's our, our understanding of sexuality is crippled. And I, I leave the blame at the foot of the world's religions because they fought tooth and nail against Darwin and against Galileo and against anyone. So we've had this mindset that's been centuries in the unwinding. And I think love doesn't become less mysterious, wonderful, and moving, less awe-inspiring with understanding it better, I think it becomes even more appreciated for the wonderful thing that it is. I think a lot of people learn about relationships from these romanticized ideas from movies and books and TV shows, and that's the idea of what the, you know, the perfect relationship is. That's what dating is like. Um, um, oh my God, if I could interrupt you yeah. for a minute. I've had so many ex-cons come out of prison reassuring me that they are already well-informed about good relationships because they spent years 
reading romance novels. Mm. <laughs> so they really get it. They uh, really get it. They know how women want to be treated. They know what's important. And um, yeah, it doesn't usually work out. Yeah. Um, so, and then around sex, I think that at least in my experience and probably a lot of people of my age, I'm of the internet generation is porn. I think that most people learn about what sex is or should be from porn, which is often violent, which is often uh, not very focused on explicit consent. Obviously it is focused on pleasure of some kind, but I don't know that it's necessarily the healthiest first introduction to what sex is for a lot of young people. And, you know, kids these days have phones long before they're even of age to be having sex. Probably they're seeing it explicitly. So can you talk a little bit, I'm mostly curious, you know, we talked a little about the romanticized relationships and romance novels, but about sex specifically, how do you think that younger people or people in general should be learning about sex when we have the most common representation of it? to be something like porn that's really explicit. Basically, like, what's your, what's your thoughts on porn for, uh, for learning about sex and understanding sexuality? Well, um, I don't dislike porn. I, I'm not anti-porn, but what I've seen in the lives of my clients that does indeed disable them is a reliance on porn. So if an adult man and woman want to share a, a porn film out of curiosity or because they found it funny and amusing for some reason, I... I really couldn't care less. I think the, the danger is not in the porn. It's always in ourselves. And what I see typically, you know, we should probably talk about what makes a perfect sex life. Hmm. What makes a perfect sex life is a combination of two variables. The first is titillation. I have to find my mate sexually interesting. The color of her hair, the beauty in her eyes, her gait and the way she uh, holds herself the humor that um, that makes her mouth curl upward in a smile. All of those things are titillating. They give me pleasure, physical pleasure. So there's titillation, which is the arousal to physical stimuli. And so many people don't go past that. And that's usually because they've developed a porn habit that is rather uh, disabling, as I said, crippling even, in that they never get to the second element. And the second essential element would be intimacy. And by intimacy, you know, sadly, that word has been kind of bastardized in our society by a softer, gentler way of saying doing it. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that it was ever meant to be used that way. I think the word really is better expressed as the ability to safely share our lives with one another. So even today, you know, we're sharing ideas. You and I are enjoying intellectual intimacy. And earlier today, my wife and I were talking about some feelings. We had emotional intimacy. And we could have um, vocational intimacy where we feel safe working together and physical intimacy where we feel safe being in proximity with one another. But sexual intimacy is really, <laughs> it goes way beyond just doing it with someone. Sexual intimacy is the sharing of my sexuality safely with another person. And safely sharing my sexuality is something we haven't learned as a society to do very well. Some people are really good at it. What do you, and, what do you mean by, by safely? Well, safe, okay, so safely, how do we do that? And how do you do that in the environment where if sexual morality is the um, domain of religion, and the rules say just about everything that you do and think is wrong, mm -hmm. then how can you ever feel safe? And so you have to go. I think we've all gone underground because if you, and I'd invite everybody out there to look up the Wikipedia article on religion and masturbation uh, because there's really no religion in the world that says anything positive or normalizing about human beings engaging in the behavior that about 97% of all people engage in um, at one time or another. Apparently the remaining 3% are liars. <laughs> um, but if, we, if you think about masturbation being that frequent in terms of occurring in the population, then it's truly what we, def that's, that's like the gold standard of normal. Mm -hmm. And yet 
it's always portrayed as caving into the flesh or the demon of lust or some horrible thing. And mm-hmm. I've talked to lots of liberal church members who ask all kinds of questions when they do surveys or they talk about all kinds of things, and but they never, ever will talk about masturbation being normal. And it is. For everybody who didn't know that before this podcast, it is normal. But so are sexual thoughts and sexual feelings. One day, my my son, when he was quite young, still in elementary school, I think he was maybe eight or nine, he got into the car in the back seat, and his mom and I were driving away. And he said, I he snickered a little bit and said, I heard you guys last night. And his mother turned beet red. And I said, well, that's not entirely surprising. We do share a small home. And interestingly enough, you're going to be having a a sex life of your own in the not too distant future because you're reaching an age where puberty is going to be occurring and you'll be having thoughts and and feelings that you've never had before. (laughs) Talking about clearing a room. (laughs) He just shut up immediately and then he turned red and started thinking about that. But I really think that if we could normalize conversation uh, about sexuality, and we could find a normal way to do that. And it, just as a short example would, I think, help a lot of parents out there, because it isn't one talk, and please don't start with the birds and the bees talk, because that is the worst, or the banana and the condom. That that would be a terrible beginning to conversations about sexuality. Is, is that just because it's purely the physical and it's not really actually about desires and relationships and connections? Well, I, I, I'm thinking it's just, um, it's like jumping into the deep end instead of just, first of all, acknowledging for years that there is such a thing as sexuality, like by reading the newspaper, whether it's off of the old wooden version or uh, from your um, laptop reading a news story and and just leaning back, reading a news story about something sexual, and it could be something like a, a woman b- being discriminated against because of her gender or somebody saying all queers need to go to hell or somebody else who just got arrested for a sex crime. It could be anything and everything. You can read it to your children at the breakfast table. And then leaning back in your chair and say, wow, what do you think of that? And you don't have to say anything, but you just by reading that little paragraph of the news, you've made it okay to talk about these things. And it's and so when we talk about sexual intimacy and making it truly safe, we want to start off with making it safe just to, to talk amongst ourselves, safe enough to acknowledge that we all have thoughts of sexuality and that we all have feelings around sexuality, emotional feelings that of revulsion, like, really? You stick your tongue in her mouth and what? That isn't right, as we thought about in grade school. And then later on, we're going to have other feelings. But so many of the religious, and I'm not meaning to pick on them because this includes all of us, religious or not, um, will will quote something like, well, whosoever looketh on a woman with lust in his eyes hath committed adultery in his heart. And I don't think the point of that saying was to point out, oh, then don't think about it. Although my religious clients, that's their conclusion. Therefore, I shouldn't even think about having sex because that's lust. But is sexual desire a normal part of the human experience? And I would say, well, yeah, clearly. Clearly. Why would you walk across the room and talk to her because you thought she had a big brain? Um, Because you just thought, she's going to love this joke I have that everybody loves? No, we're, we're far more sexual than we give ourselves credit for. And we need to find a way to make our peace with that. But moreover, as adults, to find a way to help young people around us who depend on us for guidance to help them find a way to make peace with simply being in their own skin. Mm -hmm. Do you find that people who have a maybe healthier and safer view of their own sexuality, people who are comfortable with self-pleasure, does that map onto the relationships that they have with other people? If if people are more comfortable with their own sexuality, does that make them more comfortable with others' sexuality and, and sex in general? Um, yes, and I'll even go farther. I mean, that's an emphatic yes, not, not a tentative shy yes. Emphatically yes, but it also makes everything in life easier. Because we all have a limited amount of bandwidth, don't we? Whether we're... Um, 
uh, a married woman who works in the home or a man who goes to the office or a student in journalism, we all have limited bandwidth. And we can only juggle so many thoughts and so much repression at a time. And so when we feel safe and when we feel free and when we feel comfortable, we engage in this sort of creative problem solving that helps us in our relationships, helps us in our work, and will help us get that treasured baccalaureate degree. So I think that it's, it's, it's such an important gift. Uh, even body dysmorphia, you know, what people who feel so uncomfortable with their body type isn't that also a part of our sexuality? Well, of course. And I have men and women and have had for years in my practice who hate their bodies to the point of self-loathing. And if you say, or if they've heard and they have heard somebody in their life saying, oh, you look lovely today, or my, aren't you handsome? Or, gee, I just love going out with such a good-looking person. Um, they are always very quick to correct the person giving them the compliment. No, I don't. No, you, you don't understand. No, well, you only say that because you haven't seen this. And what it sets us up for, if, and you, I think this is pretty self-evident, is if I loathe my own body while my lover loves it, and then I go to, my, to great lengths to persuade my lover that actually, you know, if you really were paying attention, I'm horrible to look upon, that's going to make it impossible for me to receive love, to reject love, to never be able to absorb love when it's freely offered, that particular member of the social species is going to be impaired in all that they do from then on. Whether they join the military or become a corporate animal or whatever it is that they do, <laughs> it just doesn't matter because everything will be screwed up if I'm not comfortable in my own skin. Mm -hmm. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Renoites. I'm interrupting just for a moment to let you know that if you would like to support the show financially, there is a way to do that. Part of the goal of this show is to be financially sustainable, so I can keep making episodes, but also remain independent. I don't want to have advertisers that I'm accountable to or anyone telling me what guests I should or shouldn't have on the show, and being financially independent is a big part of that. The show is fully listener-supported, so if you'd like to contribute, you can do so on Patreon. It's a website that lets you donate on a regular, monthly, recurring basis to creators just like me. You can find more information at patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com, slash renoites. Thank you so much for listening, and back to our episode. Going back to a little bit of the, the dating practices, we talked about this the intentional interview kind of from right out the gate, learning about people, understanding what they're about, kind of assessing compatibility in those very first meetings. And dating changes over the course of a relationship, right? First couple of dates are very much getting to know this person, finding those deal breakers or red flags if they exist, making those decisions about are we proceeding with this or not. So we mentioned a little bit earlier, this kind of 90 to 120 days of the narcissistic love. Can you talk a little bit about what dating looks like in that period and what that means, that kind of narcissistic love of the early uh, weeks and months of a relationship? Sure. I fall in love and then the timeline begins. And for the first several weeks, if the relationship lasts that long, what I love about the other person is essentially what I love about me. Even... Uh, speaking um, for myself, if I love her looks and I can't believe how beautiful she is or how gracefully she moves or the the dulcet tones of her, her voice, it just it captivate me. If I like all of that, that means all of those variables conform to my notion of what constitutes the ideal feminine presentation. Now that's all about me. Mm. So I can fall in love with all of that. And then you add on, oh, and she reads too. Uh, okay, so as a recovering librarian, I'm, I'm like over the moon. And then you find out, you know, for some of my clients, it's, oh, she's into football or she likes to go fishing or she skis. Oh, she doesn't just ski. She's an amazing skier. And all of these things are these individual facts are piling up a little bit like spot welds 
joining two pieces of metal together. And they, they do form an attachment, the two pieces of metal, the two people, but it isn't really a secure weld because it's all based on what we like about each other is what we like about ourselves. And I don't think anyone should work to avoid that because it's inevitable. That's just mm. human nature. It's how we're wired. I think everyone listening should just enjoy it, you know, kind of just go along with it. Enjoy that wonderful, giddy feeling of being in love. And because life will also serve up the remedy. And the remedy is over time, I will be made aware of the fact that there's actually another person in the room, not just a mere reflection of my greatness, but an actual person who has opinions of her own, thoughts of her own, who feels strongly about certain things in the opposite way that I do. There's no one like this one. But those differences accumulate. And over time, sometimes they just become too much. And, and we realize, oh, I never really did love her. It was only narcissistic love. What I loved was myself. Uh, because to love another person means, first of all, that I have to know the other person. And it's only with the end of narcissistic love that I can begin to see her for who she is. The beginning of that is around 90 to 120 days and forward. I learn more and more about her. She learns that, no, I really don't like going to craft fairs, never have and never will. And I'm not going to another one ever in the rest of my life. And it's terribly disappointing for some women and for macrame lovers everywhere. But I, I think if you can get to the point where you actually love the person as the unique individual they are, then you've really got something. Mm -hmm. Is that a skill that we can develop to love the things that we don't naturally or immediately or instinctively love about somebody? Yeah, or, or, or it, it is a skill, and it's a, it's a function of maturity because we can become more loving over time. We can challenge ourselves, question ourselves. We, we can pay money to wonderful therapists who will help us grow. <laughs> we, can, we can surround ourselves with brilliant, loyal friends who won't put up with our bullshit and uh, who call us out you know, for some of the insane thinking that we have. But I love craft fairs. He doesn't even like to go you know, to, to say, well, yeah, but is that really like a deal breaker? And I think that we all benefit from having those conversations with people and, and growing, but, but we need friends in our lives. We need people to talk to so we can become smarter. Social connections trigger genes in our brain that are not aroused in any other way. They don't activate in any other way. So we need to socialize, and that includes the quiet, introverted people among us. That would be me. Part of that process, frankly, is something we all try to avoid, and that's pain. You know, the pain of breaking up, the pain of divorce, the pain of losing someone you love to an illness. We never really have empathy for someone until we've gone through something like that, experienced some loss like that. And then once we have, the very next person who tells us, yeah, I just got divorced, or I'm going through a divorce, we Oh, you poor thing. You know, and we and we really hear them in a way we never used to hear them. And it's the same with losing what at the time is the love of our lives. I, I hate it when we older people look down our nose at young people who go through a breakup because for them, you know, for a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, that's the love of their lives. And having that breakup is devastating because they face that breakup not with the vast emotional reservoirs of patience and understanding that adults have, but they face that as a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old. And that's really hard. You mentioned breakups and them being very difficult. And there's, I don't think there's, you know, breaking up is hard to do. And that's the song, right? Uh, is it possible, you said, you know, with experience, we can get better at coping and understanding. What would you advise people or how should people look at the end of relationships. Let's say this like narcissistic love, 90 to 120 days, these things start building up that you realize, oh, I don't actually like this thing and that thing and we're not compatible. How should breakups work to be minimally traumatic to all involved? Well, there are two perspectives on this. One is the dumper. Mm. 
the other being the dumpee. The dumper kind of has the world by the tail because they're in control of the process. Although I feel sympathy for dumpers because they often, you know, I've never had anybody come into my office and say, I got out of that relationship way too early. It's always kind of late. We keep hoping a little bit too long. Mm. We overstay our welcome. But for the dumpee um, who gets dumped upon, it's it's often like a bolt from the blue, and it really hurts to be rejected. And yet, I would say there's really a gift here if you think about it, because don't we all ultimately want to be with somebody who's just crazy about us? Somebody who really could easily fill in that place as president of our fan club. I want somebody that's just over the moon for me if I'm going to be in a long-term committed relationship that stands the test of time. And one of those until death do we part kind of relationships. And so having someone stick with me, even if they don't feel that way, that means they're staying with me out of guilt Mm. or out of pity. And they both sound horrible. So I'll just go ahead, let me have it, dump me, and I'll lick my wounds and eventually get on. And what I found with people who go experience a lot of grief is that with the proper social support, people get really good at grieving and letting go of a loss. They overcome it and they start realizing, you know what, it was a gift to get dumped. And because that last stage of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked about, acceptance, it's really about weaving the, the loss into the fabric of my being. And so to be able to say, you know, even though that was a difficult experience, I'm really a better person for it. I'm more knowledgeable. I'm wiser. I understand myself. And I know that I'm going to do things just a little bit differently next time. I won't jump in as fast as I did, or I... I'll I'll be more careful about what was it that guy said? Intentional what? Intentional interview? Yeah, I'll be more careful about that. Or I'll just let myself be in love and not be so guarded, but uh, wait a few more months before I sign on the dotted line of the contract. I think that we need to just really engage in all of those commitments thoughtfully, deliberately, and much more slowly than we might think when we're younger. There's no rush. If it's good, there's no rush. And if it's not good, there's no way that any of those commitments will paper over what's bad. Mm -hmm. It will not save a bad relationship to get get more committed. Yeah. For relationships that don't have a breakup phase because they continue on, dating obviously changes. First, it's getting to know people, and then it's spending time together and enjoying things together. So for folks who have been in long-term relationships, people who've been married for a long time, how does that change the uh, the goal or the purpose of dating and spending time together? What should How should people who are married date? Well, this is a really great question, and I'm, I'm really excited about it because there was something so important about intimacy that I forgot to say and about titillation. If all I have, and we all know someone out there, male or female, gay or straight, young or old, we all know somebody out there who is really titillation-reliant for every connection that they make. And so uh, if their partner gets too old, uh, forget it, they're out. If there's an injury causing a disfigurement uh, to the face or the body, they're out. And because they just can't function if the titillating elements aren't properly displayed. But for most of us, and I do mean the overwhelming majority of humanity, falling in love with someone and having a long-term relationship and having regular sexual connections takes advantage of orgasm as the most powerful reinforcer for human behavior that we have. Intimacy isn't a plateau that I reach and then, aha, we found it. No, it's more like a ladder and you just keep climbing up and up and up and just when you think it could never get any better, when you know you've never been this close to anyone in your life, you've never felt so safe, you've never been so honest and disclosing and letting somebody in, and just watch over the next year, it goes to even a deeper level and a deeper level and a deeper level. So like I said, three decades later, uh, I'm still letting my wife in on the parts of me that continue to evolve 
So I can really say in my marriage that she who knows me best loves me most. And, um, and I think it works that way for all of us. But very few people partner up with that intimacy quotient defined. You know, we get, we get scared early on in the dating relationship and we think of confiding in them or disclosing something. And I would recommend for those who are unsure to float a trial balloon. And I've got lots of tricky trial balloons that people can use. Like, well, I just met somebody and they told me blah, 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 blah. Can, what do you think of that? And your partner says, I think that's disgusting. And if anybody ever told me that, I would, <laughs> I would probably have to report them to somebody, <laughs> to the sex police if nobody else. And that's it. I'm not going to be mm. opening up about myself to them. And the same thing about, uh, for me, just asking, well, how would you feel about talking about sex? And that would be early on in a relationship. And if someone looks at you nervously and says, and they gulp, and then they say, well, I guess it'd be okay. Uh, well, it's not okay. Mm. It's definitely not okay. They're really uncomfortable. And then to say, well, could we talk? Would you be comfortable talking about talking about sex? You know, that meta conversation. Well, what do you mean? Well, like, I noticed you seem a little uncomfortable. And is it, have you ever had a comfortable conversation about sex? Because for me, I remember it took this and this and this for me to get comfortable. And then you start talking about talking about Mm. sex. So I think there's a lot of ways to get there, but it's also important for everyone listening to this to understand that mental illness is a thing. And there are people who can fake intimacy really well for a minute. And there are people who are congenitally incapable of ever being intimate with anyone. And that's really scary. Mm. And I would say the numbers on that, the numbers of the mentally ill in America at any given time when you're dating, I think you should remember the number one out of three, one out of three of the people you would date are probably diagnosable with something that's, and when I say diagnosable, I don't mean like with a small little appendage of mental illness. I mean with something that's mm. disabling, something that's crippling, that keeps them from functioning at a normal level. And the personality disorders are routinely estimated at about 19%. And that is a huge problem. That means one out of every five, approximately, of the people you meet is going to have a personality disorder. And in some families, it's a much higher number than hmm. that. And people with personality disorders, they've got, a, they really need a therapist. They really don't need a new boyfriend or girlfriend. Yeah, and I think the new boyfriend or girlfriend obviously cannot fix or help or save them, which is, I think, a tendency some people might have of seeing a potential partner as uh, flawed but fixable. Yeah, yeah. Like, I know for me, I, I've learned the hard way both before and after being a therapist that uh, you can be the boyfriend or the therapist, but you can't be both. And, and that's because of the nature of that relationship. You know, a therapist... They have a, a, a really safe one-hour appointment with someone where they have no skin in the game and it's, it's, they are utterly detached mm. and you have a certain level of anonymity with them. It's not like they're part of your personal life. They're not in the same fraternity or sorority or whatever group you're a part of. And so you know, I, I think therapy is great for all of us and, and, and there's a lot of self-help out there for people who can't afford to go to any therapist, no matter how uh, reasonable the fee. So I, I would recommend that. You mentioned self-help, which I think a lot of people get their relationship advice from various places, which may not be ideal. I think in the internet era, now there's like Instagram therapists. Before that, I think a lot of women got their dating advice from really bad magazines with really bad, uh, you know, sex <laughs> tips in them. Uh, where should people be getting, if, assuming that they're not in therapy, assuming that they are looking at more, you know, uh, accessible mainstream sources of relationship advice. What are some of the 
the bad advice and the bad places that people should not be looking for their suggestions about how to do relationships? And where should people be actively seeking out advice and, and ways to do better in their relationships? For me, I can tell people what I learned. And my experience was a really safe one and it was really cost effective because I started going to adult children of alcoholics meetings. I started going to Al-Anon and both of those groups are very relationship oriented and they were both, they pass a basket so you can make a contribution if, or if you have some change on you or not. And nobody um, shames you or, you know, scolds you for not doing that. So they don't care, but just going into rooms where human beings were talking openly and I think learning to feel safe was the gift of those self-help groups. Mm-hmm. And feeling safe and listening to people talk without, and I'm a recovering uh, control freak and codependent, so feel, listening to people without trying to fix them, because that's against the rules in mm-hmm. these groups, just listening, listening, listening. I thought I would die from so much listening. And uh, it was it was like medicine, really, for my brain. It just... I finally relaxed, I think six months into the process. I finally could just be there and listen and participate. And it took that long. And I'm not joking. It really took a long time to get there. But wherever we go, it needs to feel safe. And and I think respect for the human dignity of each individual participant has to be of paramount concern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a few more dating and relationship questions, and then I do want to make sure that I ask you about your work with sex offenders and stuff, too, because I think that's a very interesting part of what you do. I asked for questions from Instagram people, so I want to make sure that I'm actually asking those questions. Mostly what we've been talking about are long-term monogamous relationships geared towards marriage. A lot of people I know, especially in the queer community, there's open relationships and polyamory and various, let's say, less traditional ideas of relationships. So in your work as a therapist, how have you seen that kind of change over time? And what do you think of these various types of relationships? And how do you navigate that in the work that you do? I think good psychotherapy is as complicated as humanity. And humanity is very complicated. So I think for all of us to be open and to let go of all of the rules. These rules are just so deadening and really limiting because even if you found a rule that really worked for you today, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to work for you in the future. That's why people from AA say, well, just for today, I'm not going to drink because tomorrow may may bring another whole host of challenges. And in fact, and this is, again, very controversial, but I'll say, you know, for so many people, um, Gabor Mate's work makes sense where he says, you know, that substance abuse is often a solution to a problem. So as much as we decry the effects of chronic substance abuse, um, it's a lot better than suicide. So let's proceed cautiously and humbly with the idea that the answer for one person may not be the answer for you. And the answer for you today may not be the answer for you tomorrow. But if we remain open, I think we can continue to adapt, which again is one of our species hallmarks. Uh, We are supposed to be adaptive. We're not supposed to be rigid. And life brings up lots of changes. So sexual compatibility is an issue for relationships. A lot of times you find someone that you really love and you really connect with, but there may be things sexually that that don't align, that one partner doesn't like to do. So how do you recommend couples who have a very strong, loving relationship but have some sort of sexual incompatibility address that? Because obviously you don't want a partner to have to do something they don't want to do, and you don't want a partner to feel deprived all the time. So what does that look like in your experience? Well, I'm tempted to make jokes, but I'm not going to do that right now because um, there are plenty of fish in the sea. So for me, it means you didn't do quite a good enough job at the intentional interview. Hmm. Because what we're looking for, I mean, we're all going to change. No matter, let's say you get together with a future partner uh, next year. And you two, you're perfectly 
sexually compatible perfectly like no one's ever dreamed of before. Does that mean you'll be that way for the rest of your lives? No, because people evolve and they change and what used to work for us doesn't work in the future. So we have to have some kind, but what we're, we're working with, and this is truly quantum mechanics is probabilities. So in terms of prob, you can, and in, in quantum mechanics, you also, you can, you can measure a thing, but in the measuring, you change that thing. So we have to be open because whenever we both wish means that we each have veto power over the other person having sexual gratification. And if we're talking about a monogamous relationship, that's in the context of also a commitment that they will get all of their sexual needs met through their partner. And that in turn does not make sense that, okay, so then the person says to me, well, you wouldn't want me to, uh, you wouldn't want to have sex with me when I didn't want to. Well, that's just it. I, I, don't want to be partnered up with someone who doesn't want to take care of me sexually. So even if I was furious with my wife, I mean, just live it. Um, I have an abiding love that of course I would take care of her just as of course I would give her medical care. There are, if as to coin a phrase, if we can put a man on the moon, <laughs> we can certainly solve this little problem. And I think that's true for all of our problems. Human problems are capable of human solution. But they're so complicated that a question like the one you pose doesn't allow for a specific, any more specific answer than the one I gave mm -hmm. because everybody in every relationship is so different. So there might be 900 marriages out of 1,000 that would work where I could use one intervention, but then every one of the remaining 100 would need a different intervention altogether. Mm-hmm. I do want to give you a chance to talk about the the sex offender counseling thing because I think that is also very interesting. It's a big it's a big pivot, but just a couple questions on it. Um, I promise not to make it weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, sex offenders are the tip of the iceberg of our most egregious sexual failures, right? And when I say most egregious, I mean most catastrophic for the individual who perpetrates because it involves usually loss of career. I've known uh, priest counselors and doctors um, and law enforcement professionals who've all lost their careers because of their sex crimes, and whether they went to prison or not. And, I mean, they were done. It was finished. More than half of my clients end up divorced, breaking up with, you know, their partner. And that, again, is gay or straight, young or old. It's kind of a, it, it's a deal breaker for so many people. And... And yet, having had the privilege of working with this population for the last 23 years, I have learned that we all are far more alike than we are different. And in the past, we were. Who's America's first sex offender? Hester Prynne from The Scarlet Letter. Socially ostracized, you know, whether it's the workplace and sexual harassment lawsuits, bringing down CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, or somebody at Tesla here in Reno just losing their job because they said a few sexually inappropriate remarks, or it's just being uh, with somebody who's a quiet failure. I, I have a number of clients who have avoidant personality disorder, which is one of many disorders that affect people's sex lives um, deleteriously. And if they don't get help, they're crippled sexually, and they're not able to enjoy a normal sexual warmth and connection with any significant other. So, yeah, sex offenders have come into my office with so many of these problems. And our, our current um, Surgeon General says that of all the health problems America has right now, the, the greatest and the most epidemic is loneliness. And our country is full of loneliness for men and women, but I, I would say especially men. And the remedy, of course, is love and connectedness. But what about those who can't do those things? They need help. They need help from all of us. They need encouragement. They need kindness. They need gentleness. They don't need to be preached to. They don't need to be beat up or looked down upon. Uh, and that's all of us. It's really about you.
and your ability to engage in appropriate and meaningful social intercourse. Excellent. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show. What did we miss? Is there anything else you want listeners to know about sex or dating or relationships or your, uh, your experience? Uh, what do you want the takeaway to be? Um, there's so much to talk about. You know, like none of our politicians get any of this. We don't have any kind of uh, rational management of sex offender or sexual criminality in our society. The cure is so often worse than, than the disease. And in our education system, we have a complete failure to educate our young in terms of having healthy, wonderful relationships. We don't do anything right when it comes to sexuality. And, and I think that's largely because science has failed uh, humanity in this area. We, there is no book to pick up that's going to help any of us figure out how to get the good stuff. And we all want it. We all want it. We crave it. It's part of our DNA. And so um, there would be no end to the, to the podcasting uh, on the subject. We could go over uh, endlessly so many topics, even just on this one area of mm. relationships alone. Yeah. Well, where can people find you if they want to hear more from you, learn more, connect with you? Uh, how can people follow you or connect with you? I think really the best thing, if anybody really wants more after all of this, is to go to stephening.com. And there you have access to podcasts, articles, books. For me, this is my life for the uh, for the duration. I don't plan on doing anything else. So I'll just be writing and podcasting on this subject forever. Sounds good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, you're so welcome. It was delightful. Long, but delightful. Yeah, usually is. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks to my guest, Stephen Ng, marriage and family therapist. I really appreciated being able to have an episode all about relationships and sex and dating for Valentine's Day. Great timing and fantastic to have him on the show. If you enjoyed this episode or any other, please, as always, do me a favor and spread the word. Shows like this can only survive from word of mouth. That is the only way that new audiences find me. Advertising is very challenging for a local podcast, I promise you. You can also follow me on Instagram at Renoites. Be sure to share episode posts, let people know when episodes are on that you enjoy, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. That also makes a difference if you subscribe. You'll make sure not to miss any episodes. So you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. This season of Renoites is produced by myself, Lynn Lazaro, and Ember Braun. We'll see you next week. <laughs>